Uh, we are going to be in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 1, all right? So uh, I want to kind of begin this morning actually with a little video for you guys. Any of you guys Duck Dynasty fans? All right, well, you might like this this morning. America, everybody is in too big of a rush. Lay back, take a sip of tea, mow a little grass, yo, and then if you get tired, take you a nap. Work hard, nap hard. Play hard. That's what I always say, Jack. Work hard, nap hard. Work hard, nap hard. Work hard, nap hard. Play, play, play hard. That's what I always say, Jack. All night. Take a sip of tea. Roll a little branch. When you get a break, you got to go to sleep fast. All night. Take a sip of tea. Roll a little branch. So when you get a break, you got to go to sleep fast. Find them on the grill. All right. Now, I know you guys are wondering, how in the world am I getting from Duck Dynasty and that to our topic this morning, all right? But here's the deal. I don't know any of you guys, how many of you guys are actually Duck Dynasty avid fanatics? Raise your hand, all right? All right, some of you guys are kind of curious from the outside. I'll tell you guys this summer, I finally had to get into it. I finally had to watch a few episodes to see what all the hubbub was about, all right? And I'll tell you guys, I'm not on a TV show with a cast of characters that I truly cannot figure out, all right? I do not know how to box them in. I don't know how to categorize them, all right? On one hand, they are absolutely filthy rich, all right? They could own you. They could own our town if they wanted to purchase it, all right? On another hand, on another set of things, they're kind of redneck, right? Uh, the way they dress, the way they talk, the way they look, right? Beards that are like huge and giant, all right? There's something going on in many ways with Duck Dynasty. I feel like they, in some ways, defy every cultural stereotype that you could imagine, right? On another level, they personify every cultural stereotype you can imagine. In fact, I was thinking, how, how would this have played out in the director scene or in the screenwriter's room with that episode clip, right? Who had, their, who had the right idea, who had the brilliant idea to have Psy freestyle rapping, right? Uh, with a little bit of music in the backdrop, pouring tea, I mean, how did that idea come about, right? There are so many things going on in that show, even in that clip, that I don't know how to pull all that together, right? If there are cultural rules, they are breaking every single one of them, right? I don't know how to describe that cast of characters. I don't know what cultural, in a sense, sleeve to put them in, all right? In fact, this morning, as we kind of jump into Genesis 1, I'm going to kind of submit to you guys that when we think of culture, it's not just Duck Dynasty that we're wondering, hey, what kind of culture do they fit in, right? In some ways, they're making their own culture, all right? But even as we think of culture, I think for many of us, we don't know how to define culture whatsoever. How do you actually define and put tracks around what culture is? How do you define it? What does it mean to, uh, if you had to define culture? I think for many of us, we think of different kinds of people, all right? We think of those that are cultured, right? Uh, these are your upper class people who uh, go to modern art museums and hush museums who civilly discuss and interpret modern art, right? Typically have a glass of wine in hand with a little pinky out because that's what really classy people do, right? As they kind of drink. Uh, they know all the fashion trends, right? They know all the Twitter trends, right? They know all of the global causes and everything that's going on. You'll find them sometimes dressed to the nines at symphony orchestra charity benefits, right? And then there's a whole other group of people, right? 
and more of your redneck hillbilly people, right? Uh, you know who you are if this is where you come from city-wise, all right? Uh, these kinds of people, all right, uh, they are not so concerned with fashion trends as they are kind of sometimes maybe kind of figuring out how to coordinate their camo, right? Uh, they don't have wine in hand, they have beer in hand, right? And if anything, they are more concerned not with global causes, but with their world that extends as far as it does to Sonic or Dairy Queen, all right? Small world, right? Uh, we have all kinds of different kinds of people when we think about culture, the cultured, the uncultured, right? Uh, we have all kinds of different lenses or perspectives is when we come to this topic of culture. Some of us don't think about kinds of people. Sometimes we think about ideologies, right? When we think of culture, we think of a set of values or ideologies or a worldview that shapes a culture or a group of people. What I want to do this morning as we jump into Genesis 1 is really try to define this term culture. In fact, if you look online or if you look at a Webster's Dictionary, you'll find definitions of culture that are like an essay, right? Uh, if you can't define something in 10 words, it really means you don't know how to define it, right? And culture is this incredibly concept idea at times, very nebulous at times. And I think for many of us, we don't know how to define culture. We don't really know what it means. And not only do we not know what it means, we really don't know how to feel about it, right? Is it inherently good or is it bad? Is it something to be avoided or something to be embraced? We go back and forth, back and forth on this culture idea. Not only do we not know how to think about it, we don't know how to feel about it, which also means we don't know what in the world to do with it, right? And so what I want to do this morning in Genesis chapter 1 is really highlight for you guys what I think is God's original intention with culture. In Genesis 1, we're going to see that God not only creates the natural world that we live in, but I think God creates and sets up man's task as it relates to culture. I think culture is all in Genesis 1, and I want to show it to you this morning. And I think what we're going to see is God's original intention for culture. Genesis 1 is a perfect test case for what culture looks like before sin mars it as sin mars the rest of creation. Uh, In Genesis 1, we're going to see, ultimately, I want to answer three basic questions for you guys this morning. The first is this, what is culture? The second is this, what does culture do to us? And the third is, what do we do to culture? So where we're going to head this morning, what is culture? How do you define culture? In 10 words or less, all right? Second of all, uh, what does culture do to us? What kind of impact does it have on us? And then lastly, what do we do to culture? Uh, This morning is really going to be a foundation talk for really the rest of our series. Later on this fall, we're going to get to really challenging topics from politics, economics, to social media, to technology, to social justice, to sexuality, and even homosexuality. But before we get into those cultural arenas and those cultural topics, we need to kind of lay a foundation and talk about what is culture, (laughs) And we have a really foggy, nebulous concept about it. And so what I want to do this morning is zero in and really try to define it, get a sense of how it impacts us and then how we're to impact it. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Beginning in Genesis 1, I want to answer the basic first question, which is what is culture? All right. What is culture? What you're going to see as we open in Genesis 1 from the very beginning is that God is at work in Genesis 1, all right? Some of you guys might have just come from the main service where they're wrestling through Genesis 1 as well, all right? We're going to be in the same passage this morning, but coming at it from very different perspectives and very different uh, purposes in this talk, all right? What I want to show you in Genesis 1 is what cult- how culture is at work and how culture was created. And what you're going to see from God in Genesis 1 is you're going to see him doing two things over and over again. Two different verbs he's going to do over and over again. One is he's going to create. And the second thing that you're going to see him doing over and over again is he's going to cultivate. It's going to be, in a sense, a two-step dance move God will do over and over again in Genesis 1. We're going to see with every aspect of creation. Pick it up in Genesis 1, verse 1. Notice what the text tells us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Notice verse 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And in the aftermath of that creation comes behind, he has to say, the text tells us that that which was created was formless and it was void. It was without structure, without order, all right? 
So God will move to not just create, but he'll move to cultivate and bring order and structure and purpose to this creation. Notice what happens in verse three. Then God uh, said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. God creates the heaven and the earth. It's formless and void. Then he comes behind that and he creates light. And then he separates the light from the darkness. And so you see God creating and then you see him organizing. You see him creating out of nothing. And then that which he's created, he's having to cultivate, organize, and structure. All right. We're going to see this over and over again. Verse six, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and he separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So God creates waters and then he separates the waters from one another. There is creation and then there is organization, right? There's creation and then there's an ordering of the chaos that comes after the creation, all right? Continue in verse nine. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the plants bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. So God creates the land and he orders the land and the water such that the land was in a place and the sea was in a place. He's bringing order. He's bringing diversity. He's bringing structure to the creation that he called out of nothing. So over and over again, God takes this two-step move of creation and then organization. In fact, it's not just what God will do himself, but he's going to pass that on to his creation because every time we have creativity, after creativity always comes chaos. I'll tell you guys, for many reasons, I married incredibly well, all right? I'm going to pat myself on the back, all right? Uh, first reason is this. I give hope to the common man that you too can end up with a girl way out of your league, all right? Uh, most guys look at me and they look at my wife and they go, how did he do that? What is his secret, all right? I give hope to the common man. The second thing, though, that really is why my, my uh, marriage is amazingly blessed is that my wife is an amazing, amazing cook, all right? First year of marriage, I came in scrawny, completely emaciated, all right? I picked up 15 pounds in the first year, all right? Because my wife cooked in a way I had never seen cooking ever occur in my life. I'm sorry, mom, I love you. But my wife did it to a whole other level, all right? It was amazing, all right? My wife is incredibly creative, all right? And in the kitchen, uh, the kitchen becomes an outlet for her creativity and what she produces and what she creates is astonishing, amazing. You need to come over to our house sometime, all right? One of you at a time, all right? All right, here's the deal. In the aftermath of her incredible creativity, though, what happens? It's like a bomb went off in our kitchen, all right? I'm serious. Like dishes everywhere, flour, sugar everywhere, right? Uh, things are just overflowing. It's literally like a bomb just went off and stuff is everywhere, all right? That which is served on the plate is ordered and structured and delicious, all right? But in the aftermath of that creativity is a chaos that someone has to come behind and deal with, right? And that's where I come in, right? She cooks, I clean. That's how we do it in our marriage, all right? Gentlemen, learn from me. If you'll clean up, your wife might cook even more. A girlfriend will cook for you one day, all right? Take that to note, store it away for later, all right? Here's the deal. Incredible creativity, but in the aftermath of that comes incredible chaos, all right? It takes hours sometimes to come behind and cook after a meal like that, all right? God does the same thing over and over again. There is creation, and then there is cultivation, there is creation, but then there is a, a move, a work of structuring and organizing and building in systems to what was created so that there is 
purpose, there is structure, there is design to it, all right? God does that over and over again, and then he calls his creation to do it as well. It's not just God that's at work in this kind of way, it's the creation itself. Pick it up in verse 20. Notice that God will call his creation to do the very thing that he's been doing. Picking up in verse 20, then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth and open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with the waters which swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. He created, all right? But then notice what he calls his creation to do itself. Verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. God creates and then he calls that creation to create as well. What reproduction is, is, it means to bring further creation to the creation, right? It's what sex is, right? It's an opportunity to bring about reproduction. Obedience has never been so good. Amen? Amen. Within the context of marriage, we'll get there later on this fall, right? Uh, That's what sex is. It's an opportunity to take part and be a part of the creative work of God that he's called humanity and even the creation too, all right? And so notice going on into man himself, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How many times does that have to say he created them, right? God is a creator. But notice what he calls man to in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You take part in the creative work that you've seen me do. Continue to create after your own kind, but it's not just creation that humanity is called to. It's something else. Notice the rest of the text. Uh, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says to humanity and to his creation, I want you to continue the creative processes that I've started. Create after your own kind. Furthermore, I want you to rule and subdue the entirety of the earth. What was that ruling to do? It was just to sit there and kind of say, hey, mind your own business, fish, do this, do that. No, what's happening? I think what we'll see from the rest of Genesis 2 as well is that what God calls humanity to do is to rule over his creation in such a way that he continues the creative work that God had showed, but also the cultivating work that God had showed. That humanity was to be a caretaker over the creation, to bring about further creativity, but also to bring about further cultivation, that man was to bring order, bring structure, bring development to the very creation that was handed off to him by the very ultimate creator and the ultimate cultivator. That's what we've been called to do. In fact, I think that's the very definition of culture. What you see happening in Genesis 1, this two-step move that God does, that he calls humanity to do as well, is the very thing that I think culture is all about. In Genesis 1, you and I see culture at work. I'm going to give you a definition this morning of what culture is, all right? It's very simple, and yet I think it's incredibly uh, perfect for what I want to highlight for us this morning as we walk through the rest of the series this fall. How do you define culture? I think we're seeing a bit of it from Genesis 1, so how do you define it? Uh, Ken Myers has said this, that culture is what human beings make of the world. Culture is what human beings make of the world. Well, what does that mean? Ultimately, I want to key on this word, make. I think I'm going to key on it in two different ways for you guys. That What culture relates to is the very concrete goods that we as human beings develop and make. You cannot have an understanding of culture apart from the very things that we create and that we build and that we develop. Culture is very much tied to and related to the very physical things that we manufacture. Sometimes we have this idea of culture as a very nebulous concept. 
And yet culture really at its essence is something that is tied to the very specific and physical things that we as human beings literally make. You cannot have culture and understanding of culture apart from what we actually produce and what we make. Let me kind of highlight that for you guys. Let me kind of give you guys a sense of what that means. And specifically, how is nature's creation different than culture's creation, all right? Nature has created, in a sense, fire, all right? God, in in terms of the natural order, he has created fire. But here's what culture makes. We produce the fireplace, right? Nature has created fire, which left unchecked can destroy. And what culture, what human beings do is they come alongside and find a way to subdue and rule over fire, right? So now we put fire uh, on and off at a whim's notice when we want it. We put it within the context of our home so that it doesn't burn down our home, right? And we can put it within 10 feet of a flat screen TV, right? That's culture, right? A flat screen TV that I'll be watching my Cowboys on this afternoon, this evening, right? Amen, all right? So I tried that last week. You guys haven't changed in your attitude. I'm in cowboy blue this morning. Come on. All right. So here's that. Man, still, I can't get past it. All right. Culture creates a fireplace, right? Nature creates wilderness. Culture creates a garden that is designed with incredible specificity and incredible boundaries, all right? That's not random. That's part of the natural order. But what human beings have done is they've come alongside of that natural order and they've brought a subdued rule and governance over it to produce that. That's not happen chance, right? Nature produces bushes and culture produces bushes shaped like Disney characters, all right? Again, that's not happen chance, right? In fact, I'd argue to you guys that culture at its best is the epitome of what Disney is, right? Best place on earth, magic kingdom people, all right? It's the first place that Super Bowl quarterbacks want to go when they win the Super Bowl, right? We had kids just so we could get back here unashamedly, all right? Stoked about Disney, all right? Ready for Disney, all right? Disney is culture at its essence, right? It is the creation of something that is a cultural good, right? It's not natural. Those bushes don't happen naturally, right? But it's human beings coming alongside of the natural order and bringing governance and a structure and a creativity to it to produce something that previously did not exist. That's culture at its essence and culture at work. Uh, ultimately, Disney, uh, when, the, when you're on stage and when you're in the park, is culture without sin. Uh, when those Disney characters who are masked and in costumes go behind the doors and certain things happen, I've heard, that are not so G-rated, right? Uh, Disney, in a sense, is culture without sin, all right? Probably a little bit of an overstatement, right? Because it costs so much, right? Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, ultimately, I'm, I'm, I'm argue to you guys that what you see in Genesis 1 is culture at work. It is what we make of the world, right? Uh, in many ways, though, it's not just the physical, though, that there is a sense in which culture is tied to the physical, which means you and I need to reshape how we think about culture, right? Andy Crouch wrote a book that we're going to refer to a lot this fall called Culture Making, all right? If you've not had that book, if you've not found it, I highly encourage it. I'm going to quote from him about four times this morning, all right? An incredibly foundational book in understanding about culture and how we're to engage culture, all right? Uh, but in it, he says this, there's no such thing as the culture. And any attempt to talk about the culture is misled and misleading. What he's trying to say is this vague, nebulous concept of the culture, which is often how I've talked about it for years, even up here on a Sunday morning, is not appropriate because what the culture is is always tied to actual manufactured things that we make and that we produce and that we develop. We cannot talk of the culture apart from what we've made and what we've created. But ultimately, culture is not just what we've made. It's not just the physical goods, but it's also a sense of meaning, a sense of significance. Uh, Back to Ken Meyer's definition, he says that culture is what human beings make of the world. Make meaning what is physical, but make also meaning sense of meaning and significance. So what do human beings make of this world? What is the sense of meaning and significance that we have? Culture answers the questions, who am I? 
Who is God? Why am I here? What is the meaning and the purpose of my life? Culture answers those as much as anybody else. Culture is in that business. Not just what we physically make, but answering those most significant, pressing questions to the purpose of human life, right? Culture is in that business. Culture is not just manufacturing physical goods, but our culture is highlighting for us and speaking to us in really clear ways about the meaning and the purpose of your life. In fact, uh, why does God tell uh, humanity in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it? Why? That's the what of culture. That's the activity of culture. But what's the motivation behind that? Why? Why are we called to do those things? What's the meaning and the purpose of your life? Uh, In fact, I want to take you guys to Revelation chapter 5, because in Revelation chapter 5, I think we get the clue that's on the back end of the front end of Genesis, right? Here's what's supposed to be the motivation behind culture, right? Revelation chapter 5, we find, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, the entirety of creation, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The motivation behind culture and creation is to bring God glory. Why are we created in his image? We are created in his image uniquely as a part of his creation because we as humanity can uniquely represent and bear forth his glory in the midst of all of creation. There's something human beings are able to do that the rest of the creation cannot because we and we uniquely are in the image of God so that we can bear forth his glory wherever we go. God called us and created us and asked to have a relationship with us so that we could represent him and rule on his behalf so that his glory could be established throughout all the earth. That's the activity and that's the motivation behind culture. The meaning of your life is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to represent him in whatever you do. All right. Why do you exist to know God? For what purpose? So that you can make him known. All right, so we talked about week one as well. That the meaning of culture, the significance, the motivation of what culture is supposed to be about is to represent and to spread the glory of God. It's the purpose of your life, no matter your syllabi, no matter your degree. All right? that's, why you, that's why you and I exist. That's what we're called to do. All right? But here's the, here's the reality too about culture. I think for so many of us, as we think about culture, we think about something that has been absolutely marred by sin. In fact, we'll talk about next week, looking in Genesis 10, looking at the Tower of Babel. What happens to culture and to creation when sin enters the world? That's where we'll go next week. Uh, This week, I want to highlight for you guys what God originally intended with culture. And we'll look next week at what happened to culture and how it got so awry and so off base, all right? But in Genesis 1, you're seeing the original intention of culture, which really highlights for you the fact that culture is good. Culture in all of its best forms is God's gift. It's a good thing. I think within the church, we by and large have this sense of culture that is the enemy. It's something we're supposed to run off and get away from at all costs, right? We're terrified of it. It's supposed to ruin us. It's supposed to compromise us. And yet culture, as it was originally intended, was good. Let me give you guys another quote from Andy Crouch. He says this about culture. He goes even deeper. I think it's a great quote. He says that God's first and best gift to humanity is culture. The realm in which human beings themselves will be the cultivators and the creators, ultimately contributing to the cosmic purposes of the cultivator and the creator of the natural world. Culture is what we make of the world, physically and in sense of meaning and significance. And therefore, culture, as God originally intended it, was good. God looked at the culture, looked at the creation, and he said it was good. He looked at the task he gave humanity to represent him and to rule, and he said it was good. Culture, as it was originally intended, was good. Not something that we have to see as an enemy, something we have to see inherently as something to avoid and run away from. Culture 
This is so not what you hear typically in the church. Culture is not bad. Typically, we speak of the culture as the big bad enemy outside, right? And I think you and I need to go and rethink and retrain the way that we think of culture and the way that we speak of culture because it has a huge impact on the way that we react to culture. So if culture was inherently good, then what does it do to us, all right? What's culture's impact on us? What does it do to us, all right? Give you guys a few quick ideas here. Ultimately, culture, therefore, for you and I is something that is inherited. Culture is something that is inherited. When you and I were born, we entered into a world that was both natural and cultural, right? You and I entered into a world that had a natural order and and it had a cultural order. And in many ways, the world that you and I entered into was even more cultural than it was natural, right? You and I entered into hospitals. You and I entered into a medical field. You and I entered into a home. You and I entered into a language, right? A lot of things that you and I just inherited that are not natural, they are created cultural part of the world, right? In fact, sometimes what the culture creates very much shapes, very much uh, impacts who we are, all right? I want you guys to think about so many of the things that happen the moment someone is born, all right? Uh, The moment a baby is born and he starts to cry, what is one of the first things parents do that they put in his mouth a what? Passy, right? What does it communicate to the child? I don't want to hear you cry, right? (laughs) From the moment he's born, if he's got a problem, Parents don't want to hear it, all right? That's what a passage communicates, all right? Furthermore, the moment he's born, he is entered into, and if he needs to be carried, he's put into a stroller because what we're communicating to him is, if you need to go somewhere, I don't want to carry you, all right? That's what a baby's hearing from the very outset, all right? In fact, our kids have realized within about a year uh, that we have a monitor in their room, all right? So then I can not only hear them, but I can even see them, all right? So from the moment that they hit one and they realize that we have this monitor, they realize in their world, there is no privacy, right? We know everything going on in their world, all right? In fact, one time our monitor actually has a chance to speak into it, all right? So uh, I can actually speak into the room through this monitor kind of deal in, uh, in our little daughter's room. And so the first time I did it, it's absolutely hilarious, all right? She was getting out of her bed and I said, hey, Caroline, back in your bed now, all right? She just starts staring around. It's like the voice of the devil, all right? You know, like she's just like totally bothered, totally starts crying, comes completely unglued, all right? So the world that she's entered into is shaping her and is influencing her, which is why she's going to have all kinds of issues later on in life, and they're all going to be our fault, right? We're jacking her up and messing her up, right? That's what happens when you enter into the world, right? It's not just a completely natural order, but it is a cultural order that you enter, enter into, right? So much of what the cultural world is that we've entered into is inherited. You did not choose it. In fact, not only is it inherited, it builds on itself. Every cultural good builds on and incorporates elements of culture that have come before. Cultural creativity never starts from scratch. When we are born, we enter into a natural world and a cultural world. So here's the deal. Culture, as it develops, as it grows, it continues to just build on itself, right? Uh, The culture that you and I entered into when we were born is a very different culture than your kids will enter into one day, right? It continues to evolve, it continues to grow, it continues to develop, which also means it's incredibly powerful. It's fascinating that the very thing that we are called to create and to shape is the very thing that has almost an even more significant impact on us, right? The very thing that God has called humanity to create and to shape is the very thing that has such a huge impact on us. It's not just my three-year-old daughter who has issues now, right? It's every single one of us, right? Our world has shaped the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about the meaning of our lives and what we do. Culture shapes every single thing about you. It's not just what God has said. It's not just what God has created. But even the culture itself has a means of shaping you and transforming you. The very thing that we were called to create and cultivate is the very thing that we inherit and that shapes us and cultivates us in some ways. 
Culture is powerful, which is why it's completely an understatement to say, as we've been saying in our series, that culture matters. Culture is incredibly significant, incredibly shaping for you and I. I want to highlight this for you guys in a few ways. As we look at the move of our own uh, American states, uh, United States over the years, all right? If I threw up this map for you guys, and you guys can't see it in detail, which is part of the point, all right? But what's highlighted here is all the major U.S. rivers of the United States, all right? If I were to give this map to you without the labels of the rivers, and I asked you, A, identify as many of the rivers as you can with where they're located, how do you think you would do? Or some of you guys that are great world history professors or, or United States history fanatics, and you guys are kind of the anomaly, but every single one of us would struggle mightily, right? Let me just make it simpler for you, all right? Let me bring it down to a second grade level. How many of you can name four major U.S. rivers, all right? Don't even worry about where they are. I just want their names, right? Even that, we would probably struggle. Why? Why? Why do we not know U.S. major rivers? Because frankly, for many of us, the rivers have no bearing on our lives, Right? No bearing whatsoever on how we live, how we think. We don't live near a river. We've never even been on a river. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't, whatever, right? River's not a big deal for you and I, right? But in an earlier phase of American history, the river was all of life, right? The river determined life. The river led to transportation. It brought water. It allowed goods to be moved. It created the uh, steamboat, right? All of life centered around the river, right? Uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, all those kinds of stuff about life on the river, right? You guys remember that from reading that from elementary school, right? Of an era long ago, right? We're not so familiar with rivers, but we are way more familiar with the interstate system here in America, right? Uh, if I were to ask you guys how many U.S. interstates could you name, I bet you could do better than the rivers, right? A lot of us know I-45. If you guys are in Dallas, you know I-20, I-30, right? The interstate system is way more of something that is impacting to our life, Right? You guys know Highway 6 just to get in and out of this place, right? So you think about our culture and our world. Our world was dominated by a cultural good that was created way back when known as concrete, right? Concrete and asphalt that then began to be laid to create an incredible infrastructure and system within our country to move about incredible transportation, right? So now you can move from West Coast to East Coast, not along a horse and a buggy, but along a car. So there came the automobile industry. Also with the interstate system came not just the automobile industry, but also came the fast food industry, all right? Now chains could erupt across our country so that you could get food and, and have systems in place to move food all across the nation and have the same brand, the same experience wherever you went. In fact, if you're driving 10 hours in the middle of nowhere, you got to have food. So guess what? McDonald's, right? McDonald's and interstate system co-married together, all right? That's how we got fast food, all right? Interstate system, all right? Some of us know our interstate system, but even more, I'd say for you and I today, what we are inundated with, what's way more a part of our lives, the culture that has really come in on us is not the interstate system as much, though it's there, but for us, it would probably be the information superhighway, right? So when someone created the internet, it changed all of the way that you and I live, all right? It changes the way that we think. It changes the way that we relate, even as relationships, right? There came social media. There came websites. There came the way that we even get information. Very few people today even do newspapers, right? The very ways that we get our news and our print now has completely changed mediums and modes. Culture has a huge impact on the way that we do life. Culture even has a huge impact on the way that we do church, right? So even for us, there was a day and time that we would put sermons on tapes, right? Little plastic things with little wheels in the middle, all right? Uh, then came ser- sermons on CDs, right? Then we said, oh, this is crazy. No one's doing this anymore. No one's coming by the church to get a CD. So everything went to the web, right? You could podcast main service college sermons, right? Now, even just this week, we, we've really gotten with it, all right? iPads, iPhones, whatever. You can get the Grace Bible Church app on your phone. Hallelujah. We are in the 21st century, people. All right? Amazing, all right? So now you can get podcasts. You can get resources. You can find ways to give, ways to get in small groups, all 
from an app on your phone, right? Culture shapes who we are and how we live, right? has an incredible impact on us, all right? And so as you guys think about it, the question I really want to hit for you guys is this, that yes, culture matters, right? The church far too long has been silent on culture as if we want to kind of bunker up and get away from everything. But God created culture, it's good. It's very much tied to the very original design we got in Genesis 1 to be those who would co-create with God and those who would co-cultivate the very creation that God handed off to us. Culture is inherently good as we produce and as we create, all right? question though is if it's that impactful on us what do we do to it what are we called to do this is where i kind of want to wrap up this morning what are we called to do with it not just what it does to us but what are we called to do with it i'm going to give you guys one basic idea that we're going to hit all semester i want to challenge you guys to consider becoming culture makers and not just critics the church by and large as they've thought about culture as they've interacted with the culture we've become critics we've become condemners sometimes we copy it or sometimes we just consume it right Let's stand from afar and criticize and throw balls at something, all right? Or maybe knives. I don't know if balls going to do anything, right? Throw knives at something, all right? Throw criticisms and accusations. Or let's just say, you know what? They got something good going on here. Let's go make our own school, our own coffee shop, and just copy everything they're doing in our own little world, all right? So either we criticize or we copy or we say, you know what? Let's just consume everything culture has for us, all right? We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, especially when we look at the fact that culture has gone awry. Something has happened that tainted culture itself, too. But before we get there, I really want to highlight for you guys that ultimately and originally, culture was good. So it's not something that we need to duck and cover from at every turn. We need to learn how to navigate through it. And ultimately, I want to argue for you guys and push y'all as we walk through this semester to be way more than cultural critics, cultural condemners, or cultural copiers, or cultural consumers. I'm going to challenge y'all to become cultural culture makers, to be in the business of making culture, of creating and cultivating that which God has entrusted to you as you've entered into this world. Uh, Andy Crouch again says this, speaking of cultural change, he says, cultural change will only happen when something new displaces to some extent existing culture in a very tangible way. We talk a lot about changing the world. When the campus changed the world. The reality of change, culturally speaking, at a large level is that it is not coming through criticizing, condemning, copying, or consuming. The way change happens in a culture at large is through the creation of something new that displaces something old, right? And so the interstate system completely displaced rivers. We don't need rivers in that same kind of way now, unless we just want to kayak, right? (laughs) You know, interstate system completely changed. Something new was created that completely changed our whole world. Information superhighway is now changing the entirety of the way that we think, the way that we relate, the way that we even get our information. The creation of something new always displaces something old. It is not through criticism or condemnation that something old has moved away. When our church is and our uh, Christianity at large is all about criticism, condemnation, copying, or consuming, our impact is incredibly minimal. And so as we begin to talk through a lot of these topics this fall, our hope and my heartbeat for you guys is that we begin to think about how do we become culture makers? How do we begin to introduce something into the world that is absolutely revolutionary and not just that we're sitting here throwing knives and accusations and then sitting and offering no solutions, right? How do we move into politics? How do we move into a discussion about sexuality, homosexuality, and marriage? How do we move into discussion about the economy, about those that have much and those that have little? How do we do those things in a way that's not just criticizing, that brings solutions and offers an opportunity and a hope? That's kind of where we're going to go this semester. Because somewhere along the way, the church began to think that all it can do is offer opportunities and solutions for church culture. 
Somewhere along the way, the church began to think that all it has a voice on is church culture. And a divide occurred somewhere along the way between what is sacred and what is secular, right? So the church should just be over here, and the world can be over there. And you little Christian, don't say anything about the rest of these are cultural arenas, right? Somewhere along the way, we begin to think that our faith relates only to one small area of our life. Remember, God is a creator and a cultivator of all that is here. And he said it was all good. So as we begin to think about these little areas, ultimately God has an intention and a design for all of these areas, whether they be politics, economics, sexuality, social justice, right? Across the board, God has a voice and has a perspective of faith on those things. What is that? How does the Christian move into those arenas? Because ultimately we have divided that which is sacred from that which is secular, and it's a divide that is unnecessary. It is a divide that takes Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, and puts him in a small little corner. And as long as you can appease him over here, then just go on and live your life. But if you know Jesus Christ this morning, his reign over your life and his reign over the universe is all-inclusive, all-encompassing. It includes all things, which means you and I do not need to make a divide between what is sacred and what is supposedly secular. All things come under his purview. All things come under his reign, which means there's no need to separate into our, li- our lives into compartments, which really means for you and I that we are to glorify God in all that we've done. Um, I want to give you guys one last quote before I give you guys the third point. A.W. Tozer says, it is not what man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. You and I think constantly about our activity and whether that is sacred or secular. I love Tozer's quote because he says, you could be sweeping a street, You could be teaching a Bible study. You could be running for office on student government. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. The question really pertains to its eternal impact is why are you doing those things? You can sweep to the glory of God. You can run for an office to the glory of God. You can create an iPad for the glory of God. Or you can do all those things for all the wrong reasons. It's not the activity that determines the impact. It's the motivation for it. Again, we'll be hitting that idea as we go throughout the entirety of the series this fall. Lastly, glorify God in your whole life. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, it doesn't matter whether you are a student, whether you have a job. It doesn't matter what activity that you are tasked with, that you are engaged with. Every single activity that we've been commissioned to do can be done to the glory of God. I want to challenge you this morning as you begin to think about culture, as you begin to think about your own life. What arenas of your life have you said to God, you know what, I got this. <laughs> uh, what you might have or what you might intend in this arena of my life, that's all right. I, I think I got this one under control. <laughs> are there arenas, are there compartments of your life that you've said, you know, here, God, you can have this, but you can't have that. You can have my church life, but you can't have my career life. You can have my community, but you can't have relationships I have with the opposite sex. What arenas of your life have you said, you know what, God, you're not under that control of that. What arenas of your life have you kind of moved him from the driver's seat to shotgun and said, hey, why don't you just kind of be along for the ride and offer some backseat feedback whenever you want to? But I got the wheel. The reality is when we begin to do that, we've separated sacred from secular and we've put God who is king over all things on the sideline or shotgun or in the backseat. No, 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 he's king of all things. And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, let me encourage you as well that ultimately the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe, who's created all things, he's not a cosmic killjoy. When he's driving behind the wheel of the car of your life, he's not taking you to things that are just awful. I'll tell you guys, when God has been the King of my life and he's driven my car, he's taken me to places I never even imagined that have been more thrilling, more joyful, more satisfying than anything I could have ever dreamed. And more often than not, I've looked at back at those moments and thought, God, thank you. Thank you for taking control. 
Thank you that your dreams, your anticipations, what you intend is so much greater than the little things I imagine, the little things I want to shoot for. That what God has in store for you, if you will let him lead you, if you will let him direct you, is way greater and way grander than anything you can imagine. It really goes back to the garden in Genesis 1, when God created all things and he cultivated all things. And then he handed that off to humanity and said, here's what you've been tasked with as a co-creator and as a co-cultivator. Come alongside that which I've entrusted to you and develop it, sustain it, and grow it as you see fit for my glory. I want to end this morning with a commercial that some of you guys will remember from the Super Bowl last February. A commercial that really, I think, goes back to the garden with some similar themes that really highlight much of what we've been talking about this morning. That there is a creator. There is one who not only created, but he cultivated, and he handed to man that great task to continue to cultivate and to continue to create part of his creation. And that task as it develops leads to the creation of things that had previously unexisted from saddles and, uh, to ropes to tilling devices to plows and even to dodge trucks, all right? Why don't you guys check this out and then we'll pray. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay, wire feed sacks and shoe scraps who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners. Somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk. Somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing. Who would laugh, and then sigh, and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. Would you pray with me, guys? Father God, we thank you for the amazing tasks that you've granted to us. That you would look upon your creation and that humanity would be the very pinnacle of it. That you would long for a relationship so that we could, in a unique way, not just represent you, but relate to you and know you. Father, I pray this morning for those of us who may not know you at all this morning, may not have a relationship with you at all, who may not have yet tasted of forgiveness. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to know that that you would allow us to look upon Jesus Christ, one who was crushed for our iniquities, who was bruised for our transgressions so that we could know you, who would stand in our place, Lord. I pray that you would invite us into a know you and to have a relationship with you for the first time so that the meaning and the purpose of our life could finally come into focus so that we could not only know you, but that we could represent you in, in all that we do. Father, you've given us an incredible task as those who are creators and cultivators of the very thing that you've created and you've handed off to us and entrusted us to be about. Not just those of us who are farmers one day, 
but in every task and every vocation and every calling that you will direct us to, you've given us a unique privilege and a divine calling to represent you in those tasks. To see the creativity of the human race, to see the incredible capacity of the human race shows your handiwork and it shows your design and it shows your character. And Father, I pray that you allow us to see in whatever arena of life that we stand, in whatever task that we stand, in whatever we're looking at, Lord, I pray that you allow us to do it to represent you and to glorify you. Allow us to bring the fullness of our creativity and the fullness of our capabilities to those tasks and to those callings in whatever arena we step. May we honor you. May we reflect you. May we allow a watching world to see the grandeur and the greatness of your glory. Might we as a community, might we as a church, might we as men and women of God show the world something uniquely different that would stand out and stand out distinctly from our culture at large. Lord, we love you. And Father, I ask as we walk through the series as follower that you would continue to teach us and show us and allow us, especially this morning, as we look at our culture to not be so hesitant, to not be so critical, uh, but to see a a redemptive and a common grace within it that a part of your design is laced in every arena of our lives. And so much of what we've seen humanity create very much has your handiwork on it, very much has your design, very much reflects what you've called us to. And yet even as we look next week at what sin does to all of your creation, even to culture, Lord, allow us to begin to figure out how we navigate culture, how our faith intersects with each of our arenas of our lives, Lord, and may you direct us, may you grant us a sense of peace, a sense of real sense of joy in what you've called us to be a part. Help us to feel a greater freedom, a greater sense of significance in the tasks that you've called us to, seeing in them your purpose and your handiwork. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, great to see you all this morning. We will see you guys next week. Y'all have a wonderful week.